0: Their exoskeleton and their frass, their excrement, has BLAG1, a particular protein in it that induces asthma. It doesn't trigger asthma attacks. It induces asthma in individuals who didn't have it. Well, it also triggers asthma attacks too. But the big key factor there is that there's a level of inequity that we see from the fact that the individuals who are typically in low, lower income housing situations, the economically disenfranchised individuals, oftentimes you see overrepresentation of African-Americans in those contexts. And it's created a very problematic system where inequity doesn't just extend to finances, but even to the health of the individuals in those contexts.
1: Hello, and welcome to Health Views with Deb Friesen, MD a podcast about health and wellness within today's healthcare landscape. I'm your host, Dr. Deb Friesen with Kaiser Permanente, and I've been working in healthcare for over 20 years. During that time, I've learned that the most powerful tool for healing is the power of listening and the value of asking the right questions. Come join me as we'll together explore timely topics that impact people, businesses, and communities. Now let's check out today's view. Let's celebrate Earth Day together with this energetic and engaging interview with Dr. Sammy Ramsey, aka Dr. Bugs, who's a professor of entomology, biofrontiers at the University of Colorado Boulder and founder and director of the Ramsey Research Institute. During this interview, you'll not only hear Dr. Sammy's passion for insects, you'll hear his advocacy for environmental education and health equity. I just want to start actually with a little bit about you, which is to say that you are an assistant professor up at CU Boulder, the Marvin H. Carruthers Endowed Chair for Early Career Faculty Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. But where I really want to start is with your origin story. So I let you know that I love bugs. If you look at little kids, I remember my daughter turning the stones over when she would go into the backyard to see what bugs were on there. And you have an origin story about bugs that I think is just a little bit more unusual given your profession right now.
0: I I do have an an unusual origin story in that most entomologists don't start by telling you they were absolutely terrified of insects originally. But as a kid, I could think of nothing more frightening than a bug.
1: And was that innate to you? Was that a socialized thing, do you think? Or was it just you always were terrified of them. There was something almost evolutionary in your brain where these are, these are something to stay away from.
0: Well, as with most things, um, we come to learn that there is a balance of nature and nurture involved in both. I'm sure that there was an interplay of both of those elements there, but there did seem to be something deep down inside of me that mistrusted insects, thought that they were always out for my ill, and I didn't really get a lot of pushback to those belief systems. And it really wasn't until my parents got fed up with what was going on. I mean, I was having nightmares about insects Mm. on a regular basis and waking everybody up, running from bugs that weren't there. And it was just, it was a little much. So (laughs) my parents got me a library card at age seven. They told me people fear what they don't understand. And that if I learned about these creatures, maybe I wouldn't be so afraid of them. And they could not possibly have known how well that would work. Because my mom says it worked a bit too well. After that, I was bringing bugs into the house, constantly looking at their behavior. I wanted all of them alive. I never did the whole pinning insects thing as a kid. It was always jars and then eventually moving up to terraria of insects that were in various places in the house. And it was just such an exciting way to see the natural world. I was also always the smallest kid in my classes, by far, the smallest and skinniest, And I was inspired by what these creatures could accomplish, being some of the smallest organisms on the planet.
1: Oh, it was so interesting. You could almost relate to them. And they were meaningful and made a difference despite their size. I couldn't agree more regarding kind of the natural world and combination with the library. We had an external hive in our backyard and very afraid of the bees, and I had little kids, and we went to the children's section and got books on bees. And it was just amazing, and we all fell in love with them. So I I totally identify with what you're talking about there. So went on to become a professor. I know that you've studied bees. Before we go too much further though, one thing that also intrigued me is that you want to continue your adventure of learning through other people with the Ramsey Research Foundation. And I want to give you just a minute to talk about that because I was actually really touched about kind of what that's all about.
0: For sure. And I'm glad that it really connected with you because I think science can accomplish a lot more than it has been accomplishing lately. But there have been some barriers and roadblocks in the system. And the two areas where I see those barriers being most pronounced are scientific funding um, on the sides of the researchers and then the actual access to science that regular people have all the time. There's so much science that's actually funded by our tax dollars. And then what happens is that science gets tied up behind paywalls in these journals with a whole bunch of language that's inaccessible. And people never actually get to see where all of that money went and where all of that time and effort and energy went. In addition to that, researchers don't really connect with the general public the way that they did even 100 or 200 years ago. They used to just have these super awesome town hall things where scientists would show up and just talk about their research. And it was an event. And everybody would gather around and listen to these naturalists and these entomologists, these biologists, talk about the incredible things that they discovered in their laboratories. But somewhere along the way, that's gotten disconnected. And we spend most of our time only talking to other people who are experts in our field. And we're losing our ability to actually explain what we do to the general public. And that truly came to a head during the pandemic, when we really needed to hear our scientists, we needed to trust our scientists. But because there wasn't an established relationship back and forth between uh, a lot of researchers and the general public, what came to fill in the gap was, well, the internet. And that can be a really mixed resource. We have to think about the fact that we charge people for truth, but we have made lies available on the internet for free. They are, matter of fact, not even just free. There is an algorithm that will funnel it into your brain if you let it, all of the various lies. But then when we want people to be able to access the most accurate information, the most up to date information available, all of that is behind paywalls and these different journals. So the Ramsey Research Foundation, the goal of it is to connect the public with science and to connect science with the public. And so by making sure that all of the work that's published through the Ramsey Research Foundation is open access, everyone will be able to read our papers, but really connecting people with the the research that's being funded, allowing people an avenue where they can fund scientific work and know for sure that that work will be explained to them um, by the research community and also made available to them in open access publications. That's the goal of the foundation, we're currently putting together a system now to allow for the, the funding to be available to the scientists and to allow for people to connect with that work.
1: I love it. And one of the things that struck me is plain English press releases. Again, this should be part of our language, right? There shouldn't be this whole other scientific language. So I loved that aspect of it. So I want to talk bugs. So entomology, it touches really every aspect of our lives, whether or not we're aware of it. It's involved in the food we eat, the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the medicine that we use to heal our bodies. One stat that's really stuck out to me is that there are 1.4 billion insects for each one of us, which just kind of blows my mind. You can't even think about counting to a billion. And we're seeing insect losses, we're seeing insect declining numbers, we're seeing habitat loss for a lot of different reasons, and it has implications for the world health, for individual health. But let's start at the beginning, because I think what we agreed we were going to talk about today is just one aspect of all those insects, which is parasites. So parasites, as I looked at the origin of the word, I don't know this, it really tickled me. In ancient Greek, the term parasitos was initially used to describe community officials who went to public events and spent the community's money for their meals and entertainment. It was really only relatively recently that parasites became known and and really associated with microorganisms. So can you tell me how you define or what a parasite is now?
0: I certainly can. And thank you for bringing up that ancient Greek connection, because that's an obscure element of it that I think perfectly describes how we think of parasites. They're in antiquity. When people were trying to describe the natural world, they actually ranked them in a hierarchical system. And you can see this with lots of different researchers from way back in the day, <laughs> Comte de Buffon and all the rest of them, who have done a remarkable job describing organisms. But then they decided to rank them, which wasn't the most scientific thing to do, but hey. And so a lot of these organisms achieved pretty high rankings, things like lions and bears and eagles. But then as they brought things down the scale, at the lowest were the parasites. The parasites were these organisms where they believed it was objectively true that these creatures were the lowliest and least glorious insects on the planet because of their way of deriving sustenance. They have to attach themselves to another organism, live inside of another organism, or otherwise steal resources from another creature in order to exist. So just like those officials who were funding their own lives using the resources of other people, these organisms are known for doing just that. But what I think makes parasites such fascinating creatures is that they have learned how to think about it. It is really difficult (laughs) to make a meal out of something that doesn't want to be a meal. And so for a parasite to have figured out how to build its entire life off of this, a lion or a tiger can chase a creature down and eat it. But to build your entire life living with this creature and developing a symbiosis when the term symbiosis is typically used, people think of it to only mean a situation where two organisms both benefit from the presence of each other. And that's, that's a mutualism. That's one subcategory of symbiosis. But a symbiosis is a deep, intimate association between two organisms of different species where one or both of them need the other. And parasites, they need their host in order to continue their life cycle. So they are a part of a symbiosis with that host. And what makes these symbioses so fascinating is that they have to create an entirely different life history, an entirely different life system. They have to solve problems biologically in very different ways than any other set of organisms. And that makes them really important for us to study and understand.
1: One article that I found referred to them as ecosystem engineers with a pivotal role in communities. And I thought, I have never thought of parasites as ecosystem engineers, but I I thought that was such a, a great catchphrase.
0: Absolutely. They are absolutely ecosystem engineers because when they go into an organism's body or when they attach themselves to another creature, they have to restructure that environment so that it works for them. And the level of restructuring that has to occur is on such a broad scale that they can be thought of as ecosystem engineers. And there's so many different ways to go about this. There's so much diversity in the realm of the parasites because it's actually a really effective way to live a life in this world when organisms decide to do so. It's, it's pretty successful evolutionarily.
1: Yeah, it really is. And the other thing that I found as a reminder so interesting is when we think about a lot of impact of parasites on human disease, we think of, I think of more tropical areas, more around that equator kind of thing. And you see things kind of go each way. And we're seeing that spread, right? We're seeing that things have the ability to move from their base geographies, as it were, and they're spreading through places. They're spreading through geographies and and longitude and latitude. So let's maybe back up and talk about some diseases that we know are parasitic in nature. Some stats that I found that just blew me away, and I'm a doctor and I remember reading about this stuff, but things like Chagas disease, 8 million people, schistosomiasis, say that three times fast, 200 million people, hookworm, 740 million people currently infected. So this is not a small thing that we're actually thinking about and dealing with. Are there other diseases that you think about research or want people or think people might be familiar with?
0: Absolutely. If we're going to talk about the impact of parasites, sometimes we have to go a couple of levels down. So we can think about mosquitoes and just consider for a moment that mosquitoes deal with a lot of people uh, or connect with a lot of people on a regular basis, but it's actually not the mosquitoes that cause malaria, but the parasite living inside of the parasite that causes malaria. And so there is this plasmodium parasite that gets into our blood cells and causes this remarkably uh, debilitating disease that kills about 600,000 people every year, which is deeply, deeply
1: concerning. And that's just the number that die that aren't just also affected and living with this recurrent infections and recurrent pain. I mean, the impact of malaria is so huge. Mm hmm.
0: And so, of course, malaria is one of the first things that comes to mind because malaria is one of the diseases that has killed more people on this planet than anything else. We can also think of the Black Plague that changed the culture of Europe at the time as it spread through the world. And once again, it's a parasite inside of a parasite that caused this ailment. It's the parasite that was living inside of the flea that caused malaria, the Yersinia pestis. And then even if we, we can go with the ones that are, are very like top line, the ones that we know of pretty well, but there are a few that are obscure in the U.S. because as you've said, you think of other areas of the world, more tropical areas that have higher biodiversity where you see a lot of parasitism. The one that m- most sticks in my mind right now are the Dracunculus worms. The what? They're also (laughs) Dracunculus. Yeah, right? (laughs) They're also called the guinea worms. You know them by that name?
1: Yeah, but Dracunculus is such a fun word to say. Everyone should try to say that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And, And the Dracunculus worms are, oh my goodness, just they are what nightmares are made of. The fact that this parasite can get into your body without you even knowing it from the drinking water that you've consumed. And then when it gets inside of your body and hatches, they'll eventually work their way down into the lower extremities of your appendages. And when you then touch water, the worm is then aware, oh, I'm in a location where my babies can thrive and live now that this individual has touched water. So I'm just going to burst out alien style. And so this worm which has caused a blister on the leg, then pops out. Not this entire body, just sticks the end of its body out and starts spraying eggs into the water. Well, of course, this is very, very disturbing to the individuals to whom it happens. And so they'll get a stick. Do they feel it happening? Oh yeah, no, it hurts. It hurts quite a bit. And so people try to pull it out, but if you pull it out, you'll break off the end of the worm's body and it can crawl back up and regenerate that section of its body again and just continue the process. So what people have found is that you have to slowly, a centimeter at a time, wind the worm around a twig, just one centimeter per day, and every day until you finally get this entire worm out of your body. Well, people like Jimmy Carter have actually gone over to these areas of the world where this is common, in uh, areas of Africa and some parts of Asia, and have uh, done what they can to uh, actually eradicate this parasite. And they thought that they'd gotten it to full eradication and then found out that dogs and fish have been continuing to spread this disease.
1: Oh, that's just painful. One more local that I think people are aware of is Lyme disease. Is that caused by a parasite?
0: It certainly is, a spirochete. So Lyme disease is caused by, once again, a parasite in a parasite. And when you really think about how crazy that is, it's sort of like a Russian nesting doll sort of situation this can go all the way down to a a quaternary system of a parasite in a parasite in a parasite in a parasite. So, you know, just saying, (laughs) parasites are pretty epic. With the spirochete that you can get that can cause Lyme disease, it happens when a tick bites you and when that tick kind of salivates into your body, so in order for it to keep the blood flow going and anesthetize you in this process and create a cement layer that sticks it to your body, There's salivary secretions and the parasite is able to just squiggle its way out of the tick's body into your blood work move around your body, wreaking havoc as it goes. And one of the problems is that it kind of uses your cells as camouflage. It can hide out inside of them. And unfortunately, what it then requires for you to get rid of it is for you to destroy a number of your own cells, which can make it a very debilitating thing to manage in human beings.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I know that I think most of us understand that a world without bugs would mean a world without people. What about if we really could eradicate parasites, would that be good for all of us on Earth? So I've done a number of ask me anything
0: sort of things where I will do a, a podcast or give a talk somewhere and then just open the floor. And one of the first questions that almost always comes up is, all right, I've got one that'll stump you. What is the point of, and then they will name a parasite, mosquitoes. What's the point of ticks? What's the point of, and it can be, if we think about this entirely on the basis of the point of an organism needs to be the benefit that it provides to me, directly, economically, sometimes those questions can be hard to answer because I can give you a very easy, here's the point of honeybees. They provide $18.6 billion to the United States economy every year and more than $260 billion to the global economy every year. And those are conservative estimates. So yeah, we can quantify economically their benefit, but what do we say about mosquitoes and these other creatures? Well, I really want people to consider for a moment That when we're studying these organisms, I I tell people all the time, the study of entomology is the study of diversity, because the most diverse group of organisms on this planet are the insects. And when a set of creatures are diverse, it is because they have found success at solving problems in a variety of different ways. And so if we want to study these creatures, what we study is their problem-solving ability. What we learn about them is how they've solved some of the same biological problems that we are still working on. We learned how to make paper from wasps. From watching them solve a problem, we looked at these paper wasps and decided, you know what, we can take that really cool ability that they have there and solve a problem. We learned how to produce antibiotics from bacteria competing with other bacteria. (laughs) And so one bug to fight another bug, and it's been quite remarkable. From creatures like mosquitoes, as we learn how they've solved these different problems, as we've learned about the the medicinal properties of their saliva, their ability to create these blood thinners and everything just biologically without all of the other synthesized chemicals and things, it's, it's really quite remarkable to see what they can do. And the number of things that we can learn from these parasites are endless because they have learned how to exist in our bodies and they can teach us how our bodies work. If we got rid of them, we would get rid of all of those incredible problem solving systems and never know how to unlock those answers potentially.
1: I love that. And I think I'm going to talk about this podcast as insects, as our mentors, because I think that's just a lovely way of understanding the value that we get. So even from moving from the hypothetical space, is there a place where parasites are actually good for us? I think that we always think of them as malignant instead of benevolent. And so I can think of maybe one or two examples, but I'm going to let you share.
0: Oh, for sure. And this is one of my favorite things to talk about because it never ceases to astound people. I want people to understand that parasites are not out for your ill. They just want to share. So- For the same reason that you don't want to burn your house down, parasites don't want to kill you. They need you. They are dependent on you and connected with you. So the parasitic organisms that live inside of our bodies, they have established a symbiotic relationship that while they are taking resources and not necessarily giving things back, they don't want to hurt you in the process. And when you have a balanced parasite relationship, The vast majority of the time, it will not hurt you in the process unless you get too many parasites. But the thing that does occur is people get parasites from other animals, and those parasites have adapted to an evolutionary context that is totally different, another organism's body. When people get a pig tapeworm or a fish tapeworm in their body, that tapeworm has no idea how to exist inside of a human being in a way that doesn't harm that human and then causes a bunch of problems. There are also parasites out there that blur the line between being a parasite and being a mutualist. Because while they tend not to give a huge amount back, they do modulate the human body in ways that benefit them and can actually benefit us. There are certain types of parasitic worms that can get into the human body and over evolutionary time have developed a means of modulating the human immune system where they can reduce the potency of the human immune response in a way that protects them from being killed but in a way that also helps us. Individuals who lack these parasitic worms have a much greater predisposition to issues like asthma, Typical autoimmune diseases that we have seen on the rise as we have become a more sanitized world that's gotten rid of these parasites. Even issues like Crohn's disease, these varying issues that are related to immune responses where these parasites have learned how to modulate the immune response, that can actually protect us from diseases.
1: It's amazing to me to think about that. We're seeing the world warm up, which means we're seeing effects of that on populations. We know how important all of this is. So how is it that we're seeing changes happen in those insect populations? And it seems to me there's such a risk in losing all of that insect knowledge, as you put it, when it comes to how we're going to continue to live in this world together. So what's happening in the world of insects as the world is heating up?
0: Oh, my goodness. As the world is heating up, you're seeing environments change much more rapidly than evolution can typically account for. So evolution is usually a fairly slow process. And I don't wanna leave you with the impression that evolution stops or fails in these contexts, but what happens is you tend to lose a lot of diversity in this process, while a number of organisms that have a very specific set of traits are elevated and their populations can then take over. And so while multiple studies have shown that while driving your car down the road, you're going to hit a lot, less, or a lot fewer insects than you would have hit 50 to 70 years ago, people tell me all the time, I still see bugs constantly. I see spiders in my house. I see ants all the time. There are grasshoppers. I'm looking at a locust right now. So what exactly are you trying to get across to us and telling us that the insects are disappearing? Well, we're losing a lot of diversity and then specific sets of insects are then taking over and they're filling that gap. But ecosystems are much healthier when there's a diversity of organisms, even if there's the exact same number of creatures. If There were 5,000 creatures on one island and 5,000 creatures on another island, and one island had 500 species and the other island only had 50. The healthiest population under the vast majority of circumstances is going to be the population that has 500 species, that there's the same amount of organisms, but distributed amongst a lot of different creatures. And what we're seeing is we're losing the diversity of a lot of different insects.
1: And impacts on health, again, as the insect spread, as the parasite spread. But another fascinating place I came to was really around our food supply parasites are a major cause of disease. There's production loss and livestock. So the implications for all of these changes are not just direct, but they're, as you said, they're indirect behind indirect, almost the parasite within the parasite, that it's it's the crops, it's the stock, it's all of those things that I think we're seeing changes in, but aren't necessarily mindful that these changes are occurring.
0: Exactly. And when we don't pay enough attention to these situations, they tend to spiral out of control before we start to notice that they're actually problems. When we start recognizing the impact that the changing world that we have around us has had on pollinator populations, we tend to notice it when the flowers that we love to see stop showing up, when the fruits and vegetables that we consume on a regular basis are no longer as abundant as they were before. And by the time we start seeing it in those fairly dramatic and economically impactful numbers, that's usually when a problem has been going on for a long time. As the climate has been changing, it's been making different regions either unsuitable for the organisms that lived there before, or it's been throwing creatures off their normal schedule. And so organisms like bees that know to to come out at a particular time based on the length of the day and the warmth of the environment are showing up at a different time than the flowers that they need to feed on. And so because the flowers are on different cues than the bees are on, everything's off schedule now. The bees are emerging with no food source and not able to get the food that they need. They either die out or produce a much weaker colony that is then much more vulnerable to parasites. And the parasites have become more numerous because the temperatures have warmed up and they've been able to move into areas of the world where biodiversity for parasites used to be substantially lower.
1: This has been such a fun conversation and it all goes back to the beginning of your foundation, which is having these kinds of conversations for the public, right? One of the other things as I was thinking about this and kind of what's been coming up in society lately is thinking about equity. And I was like, well, what is the connection between entomology and equity or entomology and public health? Because I actually think there are a lot of connections in that space. What are your thoughts around that?
0: Absolutely. The connections between entomology and public health are numerous. The connections between equity, um, entomology and public health, are even more numerous. It's fascinating to consider that this was something that I learned coming out of college that made me want to figure out how I can make an impact that would connect equity, entomology, and public health. When I learned that individuals who live in low-income housing are substantially more likely to have asthma than individuals who do not, and we found that the connection there are cockroaches, which are also symbiotic organisms with human beings, their exoskeleton and their frass, their excrement, has BLAG1, a particular protein in it that induces asthma. It doesn't trigger asthma attacks. It induces asthma in individuals who didn't have it. Well, it also triggers asthma attacks too. But the big key factor there, is that there's a level of inequity that we see from the fact that the individuals who are typically in low lower income housing situations the economically disenfranchised individuals oftentimes you see overrepresentation of African Americans in those contexts and it's created a very problematic system where inequity doesn't just extend to finances but even to the health of the individuals in those contexts And so by us educating people on effective ways to get rid of cockroaches, telling them that things like bug bombs and buying bug spray to spray around the place is not actually an effective measure, but typically will expose you to neurotoxins that are worse for you than the cockroaches themselves. But to actually teach people how to exclude these organisms from their home, how to keep their food protected in a way that won't allow it to be a reservoir for these pests to begin with is very helpful, but also lifting people out of poverty through education. We say all the time that education is the great equalizer, and I do not agree with that. Equal education is the great equalizer, and we have nothing of the sort in the U.S. because we have a system where property taxes pay for education. And as long as we have a system where property taxes pay for education, individuals who live in low-income housing, low-income neighborhoods will always have inferior education to those who happen to live in a much richer region of their country. And that is a problem that has to change.
1: Yeah. And you look at not only equal education, but it literally is the air that we breathe, the safety of our neighborhoods, all of those things that we don't directly understand how they tie to health directly tied to health, including the the ways that you talked about. So thank you for making that connection. What are you studying right now? So I know that you are a researcher and so uh, what's happening in the lab?
0: My lab through and through, there's always a connection with parasites. And so right now I'm working to better understand the parasite that is driving our pollinator pandemic. You may not have known this, but pollinators themselves have been experiencing a pandemic for far longer than we have as human beings. There is a parasite called Varroa destructor, which I know the name sounds really dramatic. Someone even told me it sounds like a transformer or something. But <laughs> I love it. Varroa destructor climbs onto the body of honeybees. My research as a graduate student actually showed that this parasite liquefies the liver of the bees, uh, liquefies the liver of the bee and sucks it out of the bee's body. And by damaging this element of the bee's body that detoxifies pesticides, manages their immune system, produces the proteins and fats that they need in order to survive, it dramatically decreases their lifespan and creates a lot of problems with disease for our bees. Well, worse still is that there is another parasite in Southeast Asia that uh, as a result of human movement and climate change seems to be on its way to other parts of the world. It's been expanding its geographic range quite steadily. Well, both of these parasites are concerns that I've had my attention on. One, I'm trying to figure out ways to better manage the parasite that we currently have, while also looking to the future and figuring out ways that we can either exclude the mite from getting to the U.S., that's the one that's currently expanding out of Southeast Asia, and ways that we can treat it in countries where it has already become a dra- dramatic problem. A lot of our attention tends to shift to parasites when they reach what we would consider to be developed nations but it's the developing economies where we just don't care about it as much. So places like Pakistan lost 100% of their honeybees to this parasitic mite, tropolilapsed mercedoside, the tropi mite, And we paid very little attention to it because that's a developing nation. We're not too concerned about a lot of the elements of what's happening there. But as soon as it ends up in Europe or Australia, or then we're going to start freaking out. And I want us to understand right now, we need to help those other nations. Either out of total selfishness, um, because out of total selfishness, we can say if we figure these problems out now, we won't be caught flat-footed when the creature arrives. But out of selflessness is the direction I would love for us to take, because those people are people too, their environments are important, and their health is important, and honeybees underpin global food security.
1: What's the biggest surprise from your research? Oh,
0: My goodness. The biggest surprise from my research is actually, uh, we just submitted this paper, so I think I can talk about this a bit now. But the biggest surprise from my research so far has continuously been how clever the Varroa parasite is at exploiting honeybees. My thesis as a graduate student, uh, as a PhD student at the University of Maryland was to understand the adaptations that allow for Varroa destructor to exploit honeybees. And my goodness, the crazy things that this parasite is able to do, it can mimic the smell of honeybees because honeybees live inside of a colony that is dark all the time. They need to find ways to recognize nest mates that don't involve direct eyesight. And so what they do is by touch and by smell, they can identify nest mates. The mites are able to mimic the smell and the feel of the exoskeleton of the honeybees that they are living with such that it is a lot more difficult for their host to find them out and do something about their presence.
1: That and is actually really amazing. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> <laughs> They're infiltrators. Yes,
0: and that, not just infiltrators. They've infiltrated the system and then figured out a way to stay. I've compared the honeybees to a landlord that lives inside of an apartment complex that is absolutely perfect. The honeybees have created this remarkably dynamic system of apartments where inside the temperature and humidity are perfectly controlled all the time. They manage the temperature and humidity themselves. They even air condition their colonies when they get too hot by flying out, collecting water, depositing it onto the tops of their frames and evaporating it with their wings so that it actually cools the colony. In addition to that, there's constantly food inside the colony. They're leaving the colony, getting foods of high caloric content in the nectar, and then evaporating it into honey, which does not spoil. So there's constantly food there. There's the best meal delivery system. Like You can forget about Blue Apron. Bee Apron is here now. And then in addition to all of that, you've got a round-the-clock security system. If you can get into a honeybee colony and live there, You'll be protected for your entire life by a security detail that is willing to use lethal force to protect what is inside of that colony. And so the mites then have strong evolutionary pressure to not just get into the colony, but figure out a way to be accepted in the colony and stay, even while they're doing nefarious things. And so another remarkable thing that they're able to do, and this is something that my work has been showing, is that the parasites attach to the bees and they feed on the liver. The liver is the organ that produces the egg yolk precursors that the bees use to produce eggs and to reduce their own oxidative stress. So of course, egg yolk precursors are what will eventually structure the egg yolk. And when the mites are reproducing, they produce an egg that is absolutely huge. We've estimated that is more than 30% of the mites' body volume. They produce this egg every 30 hours. And so it is one of the most remarkable biological feats that I've seen. I mean, it would be like an 100-pound woman being able to produce a baby that's 30 pounds every day. The that's energy requirements not... for that. Exactly. And so the energy requirements for it never made sense when we did the calculations. And I was trying to figure out how the parasites do this. And I've found, and this is work that has been submitted but not accepted yet, so it is not yet peer-reviewed, but hopefully will be very soon. The parasites, when they attach to the fat body, they're actually pulling the egg yolk precursors out of their host. And instead of digesting them and going through all the work that it takes in digestion and then synthesis of new stuff, they just load the egg yolk precursors of their host directly into their eggs so that they can structure these huge eggs really quickly, like this whole assembly line system. And it's incredible.
1: That is incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Um, It's exciting to think that someone is even figuring this out. What has surprised you about living in Boulder?
0: Ooh, what has surprised me about living in Boulder? So one of the most striking things is the difference in diversity that you will see between Washington, D.C., where I came from, and Boulder, Colorado. In Washington, D.C., I was constantly seeing people from different races, hearing lots of different languages spoken. And then here in Boulder, not so much. and hopefully we can change that because diversity is one of the greatest strengths of our country but we have pockets of diversity in different regions of the country and then entire swaths where i mean you can just kind of go snowblind looking at the population
1: yeah <laughs> and so one of the things that surprised me speaking of diversity was looking at entomologists and the history of black entomologists and what incredible contributions have been made But again, talking about a field of science that requires more diversity. So no matter who folks are listening right now, if they are scared of bugs or love bugs, any advice to them as far as how to fall further in love with the bug world?
0: Oh, my goodness. If you want to fall further in love with the bug world, I think you should get into insect behavior. The ways that they behave will constantly astound you that they were able to produce these complex behaviors and these incredible decision trees with a brain that is sometimes, what, you know, an eighth the size of a grain of rice. (laughs) It's incredible what they're able to do. But to see it, you've got to get up close and personal. And so going outside. Watching these creatures walk around and do what they do, dedicating a little bit of your time to even collecting some of them, putting them in jars and figuring out what it takes to keep them alive and how you can feed them and what they need is absolutely remarkable.
1: I have come to the end of my prepared questions and my sum of unprepared questions. Is there anything that you wish I would have asked you, Sammy?
0: I think you have covered all of the fascinating questions that I could possibly think of. Uh, I love that I got to talk about diversity and even got to talk about the foundation.
1: Awesome. So as we look and think about all of the wonderful research that's been done in terms of, say, the honeybees and the mites, what are the implications as we kind of come around again to human health and our time living here? What are the implications for us? I know you talked about Pakistan losing all of their honeybees. It sounds like a disaster. Was it a disaster? Were people, you know, starving because they didn't have honeybees? What happened? And then what happens to us if we don't figure this out?
0: For sure. So when individuals lose a dramatic portion of the ecosystem engineers that they have in a capacity or agents of diversity in an environment, you necessarily lose something. It's not always abundantly available to you what you've lost until things start to go wrong. In an environment like Pakistan, where food security is based on just a few links in the chain, when you remove one as important as the honeybees, there's a lot of harm that that can cause. And so the people of Pakistan were quick to send to Australia to get a bunch more honeybees flown over that were then distributed in the environment to make up for the loss that that was generated there. And then they started talking to the nations around them about the parasite, how they've managed that parasite. And what can be done in the future to protect these different populations?
1: This has just been such a pleasure talking with you, Dr. Sammy. I've learned a lot from you, and I will go out and collect some bugs and and look forward to reading your peer research paper. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for bringing the work to the world because I think it is important that we understand why bugs are important, why parasites are important, and also the research that you're doing maybe someone listening is going to be a researcher and can uh, find ways that they can contribute as well through your foundation. So really appreciate the human being that you are. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Deb. And this has been a wonderful interview. I love the questions that you prepared. It was just a joy to get to speak with you. And I hope that your listeners will really enjoy it as well.
1: Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your week. Same to you. All right, bye-bye. Thanks to my guests for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Health Fuse podcast with Deb Friesen, MD. I hope you'll share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family members who are interested in diving deeper into meaningful and relevant health and wellness topics. I look forward to the next conversation and will share another episode of Health Views with you soon. Take good care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. The discussion reflects the opinions of the speakers and is not intended to represent Kaiser Permanente policy. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the listener's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have, and should seek the assistance of their medical professionals.